Hi, welcome back to another episode of Multi-Site Masters, the podcast that explores the art of managing and growing multi-site businesses, especially in the retail and hospitality industries. I'm Lee Sheldon, co-founder of MMU, a training and development consultancy which is dedicated to helping managers to achieve consistent operational excellence, becoming world-class operators as a result. I'll be your host for today's show, during which we'll hear from Paolo Peretti, an operator with over 30 years of experience in the food and beverage sector, and who is now managing director of the Vital Ingredient brand, selling freshly tossed salad, hot foods and smoothies based around London. Paolo will tell us about his career to date and explain why he still rates one of his former companies that he worked at, Prêt de Manger, so highly. We'll focus though on how he's helped the vital ingredient to prepare for sale and look back at some of the specific actions he and the management team have taken over the last year to help drive the growth of the brand. So here we are for another episode of Multi-Site Masters and I'm delighted now to introduce everybody to Paolo Peretti. Paolo, welcome to the series. Thank you, Lee. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. I think we're going to have a really interesting conversation today. Before we get into really the meat and potatoes of our conversation, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? A bit of a potted career history would be fantastic. Yeah, I've been doing, um, or I've been in this industry for getting on for 30 years, um, which in itself is, is relatively scary. Um, I, I think the, the longest time I've been with any business was, was nine years with Pernamanje, which was a wonderful um, sort of training ground and a wonderful experience. Um, I've then done things at, abroad, out in Kuwait and Egypt, uh, that was more in casual dining. Uh, spent a chunk of time with SSP running their UK rail business, real sort of portfolio of different brands on there, um, and then lately spent the last two and a half years here at, uh, at Vital Ingredient. So most of my career is spent either in, in casual dining or in, in food to go. Great, and with international experience as well, as you mentioned in the, in the list. Indeed, yes, yeah. So Kuwait, Egypt, and then quite a bit of work internationally for, for SSP while yeah. I've done as well. So you mentioned two brands there, SSP, you mentioned Pret. Obviously working for a brand such as Pret, there must have been some really key learnings working with them. What was anything stand out for you? Uh, Pret then and Pret now has always been about the people and the way uh, their standards are way in terms of how they recruit people, how they train people, how they treat people and then how they sort of their ongoing development uh, in terms of their careers has always been exemplary wherever I've been but Pret has always been the benchmark and a few companies have come close to them but, but no one has ever I've never encountered any business that I could hand on heart say yeah these guys are, are better than Pret in terms of how they treat their people and I think that's always been the secret of Pret's success right from way back when when I joined to, to, to these days and I think that was my biggest learn the second one was around standards and um almost slavish adherence to getting it absolutely perfect and again but that's still then predicated on having the right people who are motivated in the right way yeah but they were the two the two biggest things and they were very much linked now i think uh, i should uh, in full disclosure for our listeners paul and i met actually the same day we started working for ssp which paolo mentioned earlier he was national operations director for the uh, rail business in the uk which is at that point absolutely was a significant part of the uk business um that to me, now you talk about press and the people focus, it's no surprise to me now thinking back how focused you were on developing your people, but identifying what you described as I think, the Wild Wild West, <laughs> as you described the, the environment that you found. Yeah, it was, it was interesting because when I, I joined SSP, I think that there was a culture of 
everyone, there was a set of standards, then how you chose to interpret those standards kind of varied <laughs> dramatically. And, and you normally found that the further away from the London Euston office you went, the, the less adherence to standards there was, because obviously there were less people visiting. So the biggest challenge there was to try and make a company that operated across the UK in 500 or so units, how to make everyone feel that they were part of something bigger, and at the same time make everyone feel that they were they were working for one business and that sounds silly but if you're running a little news agent and a little pub in the outskirts of Aberdeen you are unlikely to see anyone much apart from your line manager from the office for years so it's how do you make those people stick to a set of standards that are being agreed on somewhere in London and how do you motivate them to want to stick to those standards and, and do and do things the way in which the company is laid down mm. and it was the same internationally I mean there was a, you know we had brands such as um, Upper Crust that were, were international brands with, with a set of agreed standards and on my travels you saw some really weird and wonderful ways of interpreting those uh, those standards but that, that was always a challenge uh, that we had. And certainly when I joined, um, the, the focus was, was very much on, it was very you know, sales and profit driven, which is absolutely right. At the same time, there just wasn't that consistency. There was always an attitude of, we have a sort of captive market. Uh, you know, if, our, if we've got most of the units on the railway station, the customer either comes to us or, or doesn't go anywhere else. Um, and I said to people, well, they can still choose not to go anywhere else. So let's try and give them a good experience. But that was a prevailing mentality, and that was something that we had to work really hard to try and overcome. Yeah, I suppose we've seen in the rail industry a follow-on from what happened in the airport industry, where the clients themselves in network rail, in, in the case of the UK, wanted to see a better quality offer, yeah. product, brand, service to the consumer, and it was no longer just, well, you'll get what you're given, they really wanted choice. So I suppose it's critical when you have operational standards that they are being adhered to, to make sure you deliver on that. Absolutely, and it's, it's that consistency, you know, especially you see lots of regular customers on the railway station, and if you're not able to give a consistent experience and a consistent product, uh, as railway stations expand, as the cage crop expands, people, people will vote with their feet. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think operational excellence is a theme that we'll probably return to several times during this conversation. Let's come kind of up to date now. You've been working with Vital Ingredient, Managing Director of Vital. Tell us a little bit more about Vital Ingredients. I'm, I'm conscious that many of our listeners won't necessarily have heard of the brand. No, we, we actually got a, money, uh, a, mess, uh, a mention on Dragon's Den the other week. Uh, the guys that do our um, Nature's Way, they're called, and do our, um, we have these kind of healthy little snack bars that we've been selling, and, and they were there pitching for some money. And it's all about all the companies that they'd sold into, and the Tesco's, and then they got to Vital Ingredient, and there was a, a general look of kind of who across the, uh, across the Dragons. Um, and that's generally how we would be greeted. Um, Vital's been kicking around since 2001. He was founded by a chap called Alex Haynes, who, who's still with the company today, and it, um, it came effectively from a trip to New York that Alex did, where he saw a brand called Sweet Green that was effectively creating um, salads in front of you to your specification, and it was a, you know, it was a food to go business. Um, he really loved the idea, it was really successful in New York, so he came to the UK and set up a business where effectively we were selling, uh, they were selling salads, exclusively salads initially, uh, further along the line soups and then hot food, but initially it was just a salad business. And it was pretty much the first of its type over the years, and you've got people like Tossed and Chopped, etc. joining. Um, started off on Berwick Street in Soho, um, and then up until about 2011, it, it grew fairly slowly, uh, one unit every couple of years, there was no bank debt, there was, it was just Alex 
as he was generating enough cash, he would open another store, and he was doing pretty well. He then decided around about 2010 that, you know, lots more competition. Uh, he felt that he'd really need to sort of pick up the pace a bit to, to drive the brand and, and increase the size of the brand and, and, and fight for market share. So he brought on board an angel investor, and they went through this um, spurt of opening uh, something like 10 stores in, in, in four years which was, uh, was quite an achievement given that previously to this they'd opened something like five stores in 10 years. Mm. Uh, so that, that sort of growth over that period of time was uh, led to all sorts of interesting problems. You know, any business that you grow from sort of four or five units to 16, 17 units, there's always a challenge of keeping the operations, uh, the operations keeping pace, being able to introduce the right levels of standards and introducing enough in terms of systems and routines to, to again, ensure consistency. Um, the modern day vital, yes, still does lots of salads, either on a create your own basis or we do our house salads. We do lots of things like soups and street food. Uh, we have quite a strong breakfast offer now and we do quite a big delivery business. So our core is still salads, that's what we're all about. But at the same time, we've added things that we felt has been appropriate to the offer. And how many stores were there when you joined and what's the situation now? Uh, there were 16 and we're up to, we're building number 20 now. So it was quite, we, we unfortunately lost one along the way uh, due to uh, redevelopment. Um, so uh, so that's where we are. The, the plan eventually, certainly in the next three years, is getting to about 30 to 35 stores. Yeah. So as listeners will know, one of the key focuses of this podcast is understanding how you prepare a business for sale and, and growth. When you joined Vital, was that already your intended objective? Is that why you came here to help that business achieve, this business achieve it? Yeah, I think um, Alex's business partner, the investor he brought on board, his investment cycle was only ever going to be five years. They were reaching the end of that. They had taken some advice uh, from some corporate financiers who had effectively said to them, okay, you've got a great business, guys, but this needs to be run professionally. Uh, Alex would be the first person to tell you that uh, he is, he's great at the creativity, he's great at the food, but he is not a managing director or, or an ops guy. Uh, and neither was his partner. His partner was looking to exit. So they needed a management team on board. So they originally brought on an FD a few months before myself and then brought me on with the express idea of preparing the, the business and taking it through a sale. So that was always, always the intention. Okay. So thinking back to those days, I, I remember reading a quote recently that culture isn't the game, it is the game. What kind of culture did you find in this kind of small entrepreneurial business? Uh, funny enough, the same as SSPs. <laughs> it's like the Wild West. It, again, there, it had grown really quickly. Um, there'd been a bunch of people that had been here for a while that had grown with it, who had become very used to doing things in their way and taking a fairly liberal interpretation to some of the standards. Um, so it wasn't that different from what I found at SSP. Um, there was obviously less in the way of systems, less in the way of process. Um, people would find solutions to problems themselves. In store, there was no sharing of best practice. Um, and everyone kind of had their own little... It was interesting, there was only sort of 16, 17 stores, but people were working in little silos, in little parts, you know, so a couple of stores would help each other, they might share staff, they might share ideas, but none of that was making its way back to the centre, none of that was making its way to the other stores. So they had these little fiefdoms of, of people running one or two stores, and that's how they operated, with very little reference back to the centre. Right, so um, massive opportunity there then. There was a huge opportunity <laughs> there then, but, but again, and culturally these guys had grown up with... Um, 
to put it as tactfully as possible, uh, they had grown up in an environment which said, kind of get on with it, as long as yourselves are fine, we're all happy. Yeah. And, and clearly, great if, you know, if you're a small, growing business, but if you're then gearing it up to selling it to an, to an institution, that is, that is not a, a culture that's going to survive for very long. So culturally, that's where we were. It was you know, people that were focusing on sales, um, but focusing very little in terms of standards. And at the time, you know, this was a couple of years ago in London when there were still lots of people available for working. So, you know, these, a lot of the guys were from a place like Brazil or Europe, so they were on Facebook pages bringing across people from their own countries, and there was a ready supply of them. So how you then treated them, looked after them and developed them when they got here wasn't quite so important because you'll lose one, well, there'll be somebody else that wants a job. Yeah. Things have moved on dramatically since then in the London workplace. So, but, but that was the culture. Okay, so we've got a sense of what the culture was like. We know you were brought on board to really accelerate the growth of the business and, and the sale. One of the things talking to people like yourself who had these, these opportunities is I always wonder, where do you start? I mean, you must have felt potentially overwhelmed with the things you need to focus on. So do you remember back to uh, your first 100 days? What was your plan, <laughs> if you recall? Well, originally the idea was I landed in the May and the plan was to take four, six months to really give the business a bit of a shake-up, bring a team of people into the centre that we felt could uh, grow with the business and, and put in place some of the things that we felt we needed to do in order to take the business. Not so much through sale, because sale was all around the brand and, and people's view on the potential of the brand. Once you get to due diligence, then it's a much more it's much more of a question of, well, okay, they say they're going to do X, can they back it up by what they're doing day in, day out in store? So the original plan was to give me six months to at least start that journey. Uh, after the first two weeks, um, Alex's partner announced that he wanted a sale prior to Christmas, which all of a sudden meant that I was settling into a business, writing a three-year plan, and going out to pitch for investment almost immediately. And at the same time, attempting to uh, to get the business ready for uh, to go through due diligence. So, being a fairly methodical, pragmatic chap, I kind of looked at where I thought the basics were and, and where what I thought the key building blocks were. And as always, I, I started with the people, um, not so much in head office, but, but in shops, and started to say to myself, "Well, what what's the profile of the individual that I need that can grow with this business?" Um, I then invested in a really good trainer um, or head of training uh, who could then help put together, and he was an ex-SSP chap who'd done auditing and training, so he really helped me to define the standards, uh, to then um, you know, really codify them and then go out and audit them, and at the same time working with people to develop them. He was my first hire and probably my most important. So, so, so a real focus on people, delivery of, understanding what the standards should be and then delivery of standards. So that was, was the first part. The, the second part was then to work with people in the office. And again, like every small entrepreneurial company, there was a lot of people that had come from shops and ended up in the office. And, and that was great in terms of their passion and, and their love for the brand. But when your head of HR has no HR experience whatsoever and has, along with that job title, is your head of training, head of coffee, and does a bit of maintenance while they're at it, it's not a great place to be. So that was the second part of that process that said, okay, looking at a three-year plan, what do I need to bring in 
in order to execute that, what level of experience do I need and what capability do I need in the office? Because it's great to be able to say, right, I'm going to bring in a bunch of real big hitters, but at the time we were a 16-shot business and you're not going to have a £120,000 marketing director. Yeah. So balancing, yes, great to have people with passion, but it, what you need to do is professionalise head of HR, marketing, whatever it might be, Correct. to have people with, with that um, capability. When you look at the operation itself and the people working in the stores, did you A, have the right structure as well as having the right people with the right mindset? Well, we didn't have a structure as such. Um, there, there was general managers and then there, was, there were team leaders Team leaders appeared to be selected on the basis of they'd been there quite a long time. Um, so we introduced uh, a fairly standard install structure of, of a trainer, barista, team leader, and, and built then a career path that, you know, both from a task and a behavioural point of view, we could take people through to, to general manager and beyond. Um, so the shops, there wasn't the depth of talent in shops that was needed, and there certainly wasn't the coaching or training element in shops. Which meant that people, you know, were were maybe getting trained on one thing and that was it. Mm. Um, there was no process around recruitment. There was no process around induction. Uh, no, nothing around how then we developed somebody as they were, you know, as they spent time with us. Mm. So again, that was that was quite important to put in place. So focus on the training element. You talked about recruitment there. You talked about induction. Um, you had at this point, I think you said 16 jobs. Did you have a multi-site role of some description, ops manager, ops director? There was four multi-site managers um, wow. who, who had no PL responsibility whatsoever. Partly because we didn't issue any PLs, um, <laughs> so um, who were who were sort of it's hard to describe what their role was, but they would kind of phone the shops to check they were okay and had enough staff, and would rock up occasionally just to see how things were, and that was the sort of limit of it. They were, again, nice enough people, very willing, but I very quickly decided that I needed, again, to professionalise that, you know, the, the next level up from general manager. So we brought in a, an area manager and, and took away the multi-site manager role. It's a very tricky role to, to get right because you need to make sure you have the right support structure for them in their own shops. Yeah. And then you need that the, the individual with a certain capability who understands how they can go out and make a difference. And it's not about turning up and jumping behind a till or making salads when you get to a shop. Making the difference is more around the analytics and the, the, you know, the work that you can do supporting and indeed growing your management team. It sounds like you've had quite a good balance of external people coming into the business, but also yeah. have you seen internal pro promotions and appointments too? Well, I was very clear when I joined that for any um, head of function role, my first hire would be external because I needed the uh, experience. My second hire would be internal. Yeah. And there's a few examples of that. So we brought on a you know professional HR person, member of CIPD. Our head, well, the lady that now does all our recruitment was an internal and she reports into the HR. Mm -hmm. And her, her ultimate aim is to, be, is to get into HR. Our head of training was an external XSSP chap. His now training manager was a store manager with us two years ago. So um, our head of ops support uh, is was someone that joined from shops into the office. Um, initially as, a, as an admin assistant at a role she was entirely unsuited for, but she's really, really good at project management uh, and, and really good at the ops support role that she does now. So it's that balance, isn't it? Get somebody into the head of role that not only can um, 
you know, define the role and take it forward, but at the same time can then coach, train, mentor people coming from shops uh, because, uh, and then you can start to create that succession. At the same time, it's great for, for, for the culture and great for morale in shops. You know, we do, you know, we've just taken on two more people from shops into the head office, but again, they've got very experienced people to guide them, and I think that's the important thing. Yeah. You've spoken a couple of times now about your three-year plan. Mm. You've spoken about what's happened to kind of a year one. How do you uh, prevent the day-to-day whirlwind of the business knocking you off track and saying, like, we're going to focus on this, but actually, no, tomorrow we're going to focus on something completely different? How do you get back to the plan? Um, again, I think referencing back to when I first started, we um, decisions were made in a, a sort of everyone in the office would have a, a weekly meeting and had no real agenda, and, and they'd make um, they'd look at ten, fifteen different things and make decisions on seven or eight different things, and and then the next week we'd have an entirely new set of priorities, right. an entirely new set of decisions, and nothing ever got done. Um, the, the great thing about myself coming in and working with Alex, our founder, is as individuals we are complete opposites. Alex is very, very creative. Um, he is, uh, and I'm a complete finisher. Mm-hmm. So from that angle, we work really well mm-hmm. together. The thing that I did differently when I joined was to say, okay, let's simplify what we're trying to achieve. We sat down and agreed over a year the key priorities, and then looked at them again and said, okay, well, what are the stepping stones for these priorities? How do we get to where we need to get to? And then who are the key people involved? Real basics but just reduce what we're trying to do and ensure that we gave sufficient time to executing it properly. Right. So you, you, we were trying to do too much, was a simple answer. Even in a small business, they were trying to do too much. So le- less was very much more for me. But again, it was creating that framework then that said, okay, well, we're gonna have working groups that are gonna focus on different things. Um, our head of ops lady is very good at coordinating them, so it's one central person that collects back meeting minutes, collects back project planners, and then sits with me and, and, and methodically goes through each project and then briefs me and where we're at. Yep. And I dip in and out of different projects. I lead a couple of them. But generally these days I, I, I sit back and, and support where I'm needed to support. But we've got some quite some really good people now working their own individual projects um, that are all linked back into a wildly important goal. Um, remember where that comes from <laughs> back in our days at SSP. So uh, we have an overall goal and we have everybody working towards their um, their wigs, their wildly important goals. You mentioned that with a small team initially everyone was trying to achieve everything and then next week new things were, were to be focused on. Sometimes I find in smaller teams they try and do everything internally so I think it might be yourself a while ago talking about creating an app and they were trying to do it in, in-house. Has that been a challenge for you to let, get people to let go and bring in external expertise where it works relevant? Um, initially, yeah, we were, they were trying to design the website. They wanted to do their own online ordering platform and they were trying to build it themselves along with an outside agency. And it was, I had one meeting and, and we had this graphic design lady who was effectively going to be tied up for the next nine months doing this project for something at the time which was like 2% of our business. Mm-hmm. So we've outsourced quite a lot over the last two years. All of our creative work now is outsourced to an agency who works really closely with Alex um, and have a fantastic working relationship and that's working really, really well. A lot of our new product development is now was outsourced. Right. Uh, now, now we've semi-brought it back in-house because we, we've got some of the words with us um, more or less on a full-time basis. But major projects were outsourced to really experienced consultants so we could do certain things simultaneously if we needed to do them yeah. and we had that the challenge always at this 
this size business is to have someone sufficiently experienced at a sufficient level. So, for example, our former head of NPD also did our purchasing. She was not particularly experienced in either of those things, so struggled to a certain extent. However, as a small business, we couldn't really afford anybody more expensive, mm. and then anybody more senior would then want a team of people to work for them. So you fall into that kind of no man's land of, well, we need a really experienced, really good person in a, a certain role. We can't really afford the best, and at the same time, we can't give them a team of people to do all the things that they would like to do. So that's where we went to, to say, well, well, let's just get some consultants in. We'll get the experience, we'll get the ability. We don't need to hire teams of people because they have their own people. Yeah. And that's worked. Yes, the hard work then is to monitor those guys and make sure that they're delivering what you need them to deliver. But for us, it's meant that we've been able to move really quickly on things like NPD. We outsource, we just we launched our app this year, we outsource that, we outsource the delivery month, the delivery platform as well. In fact, outsource the, the creation of the delivery menu as well. So it was a project that we could deliver quite quickly. I think it took us six months from start to finish to deliver that project. And I would imagine that it enables you to focus on what you do well and get people who are experts in other topics to, to, to do a lot of the, the work for you, integration of the website or whatever it may be. Absolutely, and you get the inspiration that, they're, um, that they bring in terms of their experience and what they've done in the past, which is, uh, which is really important. Um, a lot of the basic ideas have, have come from Alex, but at the same time, they're able to take those ideas and translate them into something that's workable in shops yeah. uh, with, with minimal fuss. Um, so we delivered an app that has over 9,000 users now in the last, we've got that in the last five months um, and it, it's, it's working really well for us. There's no way we could have done that in-house, no way. Um, we just outsourced all of it and um, the challenge though, as I said before, is how you ensure that you're keeping these guys on track because yes, they're experts, but at the same time, you've got to make sure that they are doing what they say they're doing to the time scale that's been agreed and, and that's a, a role in itself. Yeah, that project management piece. Exactly. Now, you may have answered this question already because the answer might be the app, but thinking about this from a customer's perspective, what would you say would be the one big thing in the last year the customer would have seen changed or seen brought in that has improved the experience for them? Um, if we're going to know one thing, it's probably our, our breakfast range, which we completely, um, we completely revamped. So we went from a, a range um, that was okay and nothing more to a range now that I'm really proud of, in fact, we're really proud of, and that we think competes with some of the best in class. So I think that's the, the biggest difference. Um, we've always tried to have our own unique spin on things. So one of the things I did when I got here in terms of NPD was take the business back to first principles and try and understand what it was that gave us our edge. And, and for us, it's create your own that ability to almost endlessly customise pretty much any dish. Mm -hmm. And everything that we've done over the last two years in terms of food has moved us more in that direction. So, for example, when I first joined, we were doing these poached egg pots. Lots of people do them. There's now a create your own version of that poached egg pot that nobody else does. I see. Um, we do scrambled eggs. Lots of people do scrambled eggs, but we have a create your own version of the scrambled eggs. Um, we are in October going to be launching a create your own version of our hot street food. So giving people total choice over the type of base, the type of meat or vegetable item in it, and then the type of sauce and the type of topping. There's very few people doing that. But that's, you know, talking to our customers, that's what people, um, that's our edge. Yes, there's a certain piece around the health and, and the fact that 
what we do is very healthy and very good for you, but for people it was around this ability to customise. So we very much played to that strength. And the delivery market is becoming more and more important. I, I would imagine a big chunk of your business is probably moving in that direction. Is, is that the case? Yeah, I mean, we, Deliveroo, uh, we took on about a year ago, um, and that's, that's grown exponentially. I mean, salad isn't an obvious product from a customer perspective for Deliveroo. Mm. It is a great product for Deliveroo because we sell tossed salads. What happens when you put one on the back of a bike, it gets tossed about. That's fine, that's not a problem. Um, you know, if you get a pizza that gets tossed about, it's, it's not so good. So from the, the uh, portability of the product, it, it, it's a great product for delivery. It's just not something that obviously people would think about when they're ordering their dinner. Yeah. Now, we now have four stores that open to late in the evening and do quite good business through Deliveroo. The other thing we looked at, if you think about it, is we just sell salads. So when we talk about deliveries, it's quite difficult to order a salad for a meeting. So we used to do these salad patterns and have people tongs and things. And normally, you know, you, people are, are still munching while they're having the meeting or have a very short break. So we found that salads actually weren't great for that. So we created our own range of wraps, sandwiches, um, and, and sharer boxes. So things that you wouldn't normally find in our shops, but, but would appeal very much okay. to a delivery customer. We still have our sort of vital ingredients slant on them. In fact, they're, they're healthy, um, you get gluten-free options, etc. But they're very different to what we do in store. And we're starting to see, when we launched that just before the summer, we're starting to see it delivery something like 50% up on last year. Okay. And with, with a ways to go. Wow. Now, you've spoken about there the, the difference the customer will have seen, both in-store and with delivery or the ability to deliver. If I'm an employee, what, would, again, would be the one or maybe two things that you would say I would have seen change in the last 12, 18 months? Um, Cultural-wise, I mean, I brought in a, an old colleague of mine from SSP who was is fantastic at, again, he's the mirror opposite to me, outgoing, loud, uh, likes to, you know, we do um, all sorts of things now in terms of engaging the teams that we weren't doing a couple of years ago. So that's been one big thing. So for example, every last Friday of the month, we not only do we take everyone out for a drink, but we have a dress up day. Um, so you, you come to our shops last Friday of the month, you'll see them in Superman outfits or pop star outfits. Uh, we introduce our own fake clothes group on Facebook where people can staff can post photographs and, and the, the, every, all the shops get involved in that and if they're having dress-up days or if they're doing food sampling or if they're going on holidays. So there's a real culture of people coming to work and having fun and, and our head of ops has been very responsible for that. So culturally they've seen things move on. Um, they've also seen more structure. You know, people, as, if you sort of speak to a team member and say, well, what do you like in the job? They're unlikely to say structure to you, but actually knowing what is expected of you, knowing what you need to do to progress the set to the next level, knowing that um, if you need development, you will get it, knowing that there are processes in terms of how you do things, and as long as you learn that process, it's quite straightforward, is actually quite comforting. And I think people have, you know, staff I've spoken to have kind of said, yeah, that's the biggest difference. We kind of know what's expected from us. No one's moving the goalposts every other day. Um, no one's telling us to do something on the Monday, changing their mind on the Wednesday, and then coming up with something else again on the Friday. Yeah. Uh, and that's been the biggest change. You know, we're, we're much more measured when we launch new initiatives. We road test things extensively now. Uh, we involve team members and managers operation to tell us so we're about to launch our new food range that's been on test now for six weeks 
and we've been going out and getting feedback and, and working our way through the various problems. Whereas before things were sort of flung out there and if they worked, great, and if they didn't work, okay. Um, so that, that's what people would probably say. And looking forward now, in the next 12 months, what would you say is the one big initiative for the customer that they're going to see and the one big thing for the employees? Um, for the customer, we are completing our journey in terms of create your own around the whole food, which I touched on before. Um, beyond that will be um, the app. You know, we've, we did a fairly slow start on it because it's quite a complicated piece of tech. It's actually integrated to our back-of-house software. So you can, when you walk into a store, it's got a geolocator beacon in every store, it recognises you're there. Yeah. So it's quite a sophisticated piece of kit. So we had a fairly soft launch. Um, it also does click and collect. You can also order your food from it. You can also pay using the app. So, as I say, we've had 9,000 downloads. The plan is to get that to 30,000 by the end of next year. So that's the one big thing. And, and technologies, you know, we've seen our closest competitor fill every store up with iPads. The way our business works, we can't do that because you choose your food first and pay afterwards. But what we can do is certainly get it um, do more work around the app and, and make that whole transaction much, much simpler. You know, you, once you pick your salad up with the app, you can pay, earn and burn your point, or burn your points and everything within 10 seconds. It okay. really is that quick. So from a, from a customer point of view, that. From a team member point of view, other than the fact that we're going to be accelerating growth now that we've got the business the way we want it to be, so they're going to be seeing lots more openings and opportunities. Um, they'll see one of the things that we were weak when I joined and it's taken us a while to get to is that we, we didn't really have a set of behaviours um, and I, I'm a big believer that behaviours really underpin your culture. It's alright saying okay well I, I think we know what our culture values are but unless you can then sort of articulate to, to people what that means in practice in their day to day jobs then you, you struggle. So we're very good with the task side of things. I can give you, you know, show you fantastic job descriptions at every single level, which go into beautiful detail around the tasks, but up until very recently didn't have any behaviours. So we did a huge, it's taken us a couple of years to pull together a whole range of, whole set of behaviours and applying them across every single role within the business. And we've just launched a set of performance reviews so we can really start, um, you know, so we'd be great at promoting people who are very good at the tasky stuff. What we haven't done is really looked at it behaviourally. So, and again, it's interesting because as we start to do the work now, we've started to sort of say to ourselves, well, what does an average vital ingredient manager look like? What are the key behaviours that they need to be strong in in order to be successful? And our, our business is quite a straightforward, simple business. But if you're not very good at planning and organising and you're not very good at follow-up, then you're really, really going to struggle. So two critical behavioural skills for you yeah. to recruit. And so, so it's been a, a long time in the making, but now that we've got that, we can really push on and, and really codify the culture and our values and make sure that as, much, as far as possible, people can live and breathe them in their day-to-day jobs. Okay. If there's someone listening to this who's going to be going through a similar journey to you, they're in a brand that's going to be maybe 10, 12 units, looking to grow another 10 over the next 12, 18 months, what key advice would you give them? Um, I think there's a couple of things. We've not touched on it so far, but from a, a sort of more corporate thing, get a really good finance director. Um, they are totally invaluable. Um, and we did that, and, and it, it was uh, probably the 
probably more, more significant hire than I was, to be honest. Um, and, and they've been a fantastic right-hand person as well. So have a really great finance director on board because not only as you're preparing for sale, uh, preparing a, a business plan to obviously build the sale on, but then as you get through due diligence, they are your go-to person uh, and they need to be up to the job. Um, I think the challenge after that, and I think the piece of advice I would give to people is get a really good corporate finance person on board. Um, we got a really good firm out in Bristol who were able to introduce us to the right um, private equity houses to talk to. Mm-hmm. You know, we were very clear about who we wanted to work with and, and where we wanted the business to go. Uh, and they were instrumental in putting us in front of the right people, advising us on the way we put together our presentation, giving us feedback on the three-year plan and then hand-holding us through the whole process. And, and we genuinely couldn't have done it without them. So these have been our two biggest pieces of advice. Uh, in terms of, you know, if, if you're looking to get your business ready for sale, those are the two things that I'd be looking to do. Mars. Now, I do have one last question, which I ask everybody, which is, maybe you can go back in time. What would the the young Paolo Peretti advice be, <laughs> getting from the older, slightly wiser Paolo Peretti? What would you do if you knew then what you know now type of thing? Um, I, I've learned pragmatism as the, as the years have, have gone by, so I would advise my younger self to be a little bit more pragmatic. There's more than one way to skin a cat, is one of my favourite sayings these days, and I think that you can, there's more than one way to achieve things, and I think you sometimes need to, um, you need to be able to have that sort of, be pragmatic, be a little bit flexible, um, and sometimes realise that to get to, to, to C, you sometimes need to go via B, you can't get there directly. Be flexible. Be flexible and be a little bit more patient as well. <laughs> Thank you. I have to say, I've always thought with a name like Paolo Peretti, you should have been an Italian F1 race car driver. <laughs> um, ever been tempted into that? No, not really. No, I mean, it, it, I, I, I'm a huge disappointment because you hear the name and you think you get this glamorous, effusive kind of <laughs> Italian chap and you get this Doa Yorkshire bloke. Um, so, uh, sadly, not. No. I love Formula One, but no, I never got as far as, uh, as, as racing. Great. Well, thank you for your time today, Paolo. The, if any of our listeners would like to get in contact you, with you, rather, your details, your email, uh, contact details will be on the show notes of this episode. I'm sure Paolo is always keen to talk to anyone. If they want some advice, like to know a little bit more about some of the aspects of our conversation today, please don't hesitate to contact Paolo. Thank you, Paolo. Thank you. Thanks again to Paolo Peretti, MD of Vital Ingredient, for taking time out today to be part of this episode of Multisite Masters. I think reflecting back, there were a few things that stood out for me during that conversation. From Paolo's initial comments about Pret and what he learnt there, it's perhaps no surprise about the level of importance and priority that he places on people. I think this thread ran right the way through the conversation, from investing in new roles, to ensuring the correct operational structure was in place, and ultimately creating a career path for the people in the business. He stressed the importance of focusing on a few things, a few critical things that I think he referred to as wildly important goals, that are so important that they deserve the extra attention to ensure they are delivered with excellence. The importance of culture once again came up and helping people to get focused on what really matters and the contribution they can make, of course that's critical, but the idea of putting fun at the heart of everything they do I think was a really welcome and refreshing point. Those regular Friday dress-up days I think are a great way of exemplifying that. 
It's also fascinating to hear Paolo's top tip for anyone also about to go through a similar experience of getting a business ready for sale and rapid growth to get a fantastic finance director in port who is invested emotionally in the brand and who can constructively provide the advice and guidance that you need. So thanks again for listening to this episode of Multisite Masters. And if I could just end with two quick requests. Firstly, please do share this podcast and the series with people that you know in your existing business and friends and colleagues that you have elsewhere. Secondly, if you get a chance, please do leave a review on iTunes or comment on SoundCloud as it's a great way for us to get feedback and also for allowing other people to find the series. Until our next episode, have a great week.